Welcome everyone to The Demand Side. I'm your host, Edward Brown. On today's episode, we're talking about Keynesianism in the age of monetary sovereignty. Here to discuss is our very special guest, Professor Robert Skidelsky. Professor Skidelsky really needs no introduction, but for our listeners who are unfamiliar with his contributions to economics, economic history, and political economy, I'll provide a quick intro. Robert Skidelsky is an emeritus professor of political economy at Warwick University. He is most famous for his three-volume biography of John Maynard Keynes, who is arguably the most important economist to ever live. Um, that uh, biography gave us an intimate look at not only Keynes the economist, but Keynes the person. Following the global financial crisis, Professor Skidelsky wrote Keynes, Return of the Master, which won the Financial Times, Business Week, Telegraph, and Times Literary, Literary Supplement Best Book of the Year. He has written other influential books such as How Much is Enough, The Love of Money and the Case for the Good Life, Britain in the 20th Century, A Success, Money and Government, A Challenge to Mainstream Economics, How to Achieve Shorter Working Hours, and his most recent book, What's Wrong with Economics, A Primer for the Perplexed, was released earlier this year and should be read by everyone who is interested in studying economics. Professor Skidelsky was made a member of the House of Lords in 1991 and was elected a fellow of the British Academy in 1994. Professor Skidelsky, welcome to the show. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for that introduction. <laughs> so, Professor, we have quite a bit to unpack today, but I, I first want to say thank you for coming on. Um, I've been reading your books and following your career for, for many years, and I don't think there is anyone who knows as much about Keynes and Keynesian economics as you do. Uh, you've, you've dedicated a large portion of your life to uh, getting into the mind of Keynes, and, and without your scholarship, we would have a, a, a much muddier view of what Keynes really meant when he said the things he said. So, so, so thank you. Uh, today, we're largely going to focus on modern monetary theory and Keynes's interpretation of and approach to full monetary sovereignty. Uh, but we're also going to talk a little bit about some of your recent work, uh, which goes into what uh, economics is really for and what's wrong with the current state of economics. Um, so let's get started by outlining for our listeners what exactly monetary sovereignty means and how modern monetary theory uses this specific criteria to make policy prescriptions. So what is monetary sovereignty and how has it opened the door for this new field of scholarship called modern monetary theory? Well, modern monetary sovereignty and modern monetary theory are really two sides of the same coin. You're a monetary sovereign if you can force or persuade people to accept your money. Um, and modern monetary theory um, says a state is uniquely able to do this um, because of its power um, of uh, compelling people to pay taxes. Um, taxes in its own money, that is in legal, it's the money it's declared to be legal tender money. So the state has to spend in order to tax. Uh, hence the claim that the state doesn't face a tax constraint. And um, then this leads to a paradoxical statement. The state doesn't have to tax in order to spend, it has to spend in order to tax. 
But why should people lend to the state, leaving aside taxes? Why should they lend to the state? Well, the argument here is that the state's power to tax makes its bonds uniquely secure. So the risk of people dumping them is zero. So there's no budget constraint and there's no financial constraint. Um, very, very easy, isn't it? Um, so the political purpose uh, of modern monetary theory is to show that sovereign states don't face a tax or borrowing constraint and therefore that opposition to public spending um, on, uh, on, the, on the grounds of the existence of these uh, constraints is bogus. The only constraint a state faces is an inflation constraint. Taxes should be raised not to finance spending, but to, as the phrase is, drain the economy of money when inflation, um, when inflation you know, is, is about to hit. So, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the, the theory of it. It's been heavily criticized, of course. I mean, both on technical grounds and on the grounds of political economy. And I think the three main criticisms are, first of all, that it rules out borrowing in a foreign currency. I mean, you have to borrow in your own currency. So therefore, unless you're the United States, um, which can, you know, more or less compel other people to hold dollars, um, you can't be a monetary sovereign. Secondly, it ignores tax resistance. And um, one uh, 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 economist, Amwar Sheikh, put it rather wittily, there's no such thing as a money of no escape. <laughs> and thirdly, state money isn't the only money. Uh, private banks create uh, the vast bulk of the means of payment. And so taxes are enforceable claims only on part um, of the state's uh, revenue. And therefore, the possibility is there always that it can be risky to lend money to the state. So on, on those grounds, I think it's been criticized. But, but, but um, I think my main criticism would be on political grounds. I mean, we developed limited government in order to stop the state printing money um, when, when, when it wanted to. And we've developed these fictions. You could call them fictions. One of them is called the Constitution, by the way, <laughs> uh, which is designed to stop doing exactly what modern monetary theory wants it to do right yeah i mean anyway i, I think that's i think a, that you know Keynes. I, I think it's just been a been a stretch they're sort of taking this and, and running with it i think Keynes outlines you know quite eloquently that you know when the when the private sector delevers following a downturn um, by reducing their spending and paying down their debt you know the government must increase its borrowing to fill that gap in demand. But I guess what concerns me is that modern monetary theory believes in excessive government spending uh, and government borrowing, even when the, the economy is growing, and seems to disregard the precarious nature of the natural rate of unemployment. Because a primary concern of modern monetary theory is that the policymakers can always pull away the punch bowl of inflation, um, you know, once it starts to get out of hand. And, you know, I discussed this uh, with Martin Wolf on, on an earlier episode, and he was really just wary of the idea of this playing chicken with inflation. Um, what do you think Keynes would say about this new field of scholarship? Well, you know, this new field of scholarship is quite an old one. I mean, it's really based, I mean, it goes back, I mean, the, the modern monetary theorists cite many other previous theorists, but the most proximate one probably is Abba Lerner, 
And Abba Lerner wrote um, an article in 1943 called Functional Finance. And Lerner argued then that a government uh, only needs to increase taxes um, in, or in order to combat inflation, not to pay for any increase in spending. And Keynes read this article in uh, 1943 or thereabouts, and um, he uh, referred to Lerner's um, argument as humbug, <laughs> uh, or worse, um, in, in Washington, actually, in 1943, after which, uh, and, and after that, he stated he wasn't a Keynesian. Keynes stated he wasn't a Keynesian. <laughs> but in a, letter, in a letter to one of his uh, colleagues, he actually, he was a bit more charitable. And he, um, what he wrote was, I'd like to quote that because it answers your question in a way. Lerner's argument is impeccable, but heaven help anyone who tries to put it across to the plain man. And what he was saying is that governments faced a political constraint. And it's that political constraint, I think, that modern monetary theorists um, um, sort of ignore. I have a lot of sympathy with their basic aim, which was to say that a lot of the, you know, agitation about runaway debt um, and, 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 and sort of governments just um, uh, spending money they ha haven't got, you know, which is the classical um, orthodox uh, finance, uh, budgetary argument, much of that is misplaced. The governments do have a lot of leeway to spend. They don't have to raise taxes before they spend money. And I sympathize with trying to get that point across. But what they, what they, I think they ignore is the political constraint. The fact that, you know, people are not willing to trust government with such powers of money creation as modern monetary theory wants to give them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's, that's certainly a major contribution. And I respect the fact that, you know, they, they have opened the eyes uh, to the community that, you know, a government doesn't have to first tax, put it in the bank account and then spend it. You know, I think that's, you know, that's a, a really, a really great contribution. But, um, you know, I, I think that sometimes they, they, they try to, you know, like I said, take it and run with it. Um, you know, Keynes, uh, in his piece, one of my favorites, Can America Spend Its Way Into Recovery? Uh, he said, public debt is inevitable at a time when private expenditure is inadequate. It is better to incur it actively in providing employment and promoting industrial activity than to suffer it passively as a consequence of poverty and inactivity. Do you think that some modern monetary theorists and even some policy doves on, on the left that reject, reject modern monetary theory altogether sort of look at this quote and because many, you know, this is, this was a powerful piece and many, many people, you know, reference this, uh, the, this can America spend its way into recovery, recovery piece. Um, do you think that they interpret it as, well, if the economy, even if the economy is stable and growing, if we aren't at full employment with full employment being zero involuntary unemployment, then private expenditure is inadequate and we have to increase the public component of demand and, you know, spend to grow. And we, not, we need not worry about deficits or debt because we can always monetize the debt if we need to. Do you think that that's, that's happening? Well, yeah, I think, I think um, people, some people who 
um, don't know their canes properly um, might might you know run with it as you say but but the remark you actually quote can't be interpreted as a license to print money even if the economy is stable and growing and um, because what what deficit creation is is for a time when um, private expenditure is inadequate in other words when there's a shortage of aggregate demand now Keynes never accepted that never believed that you could reduce um, involuntary unemployment by policy to zero or near zero outside war war conditions when you had a whole battery of controls and he said of course that wouldn't apply in peacetime his position was quite close to that of Abelana in another in another um, article uh, that Abelana wrote quite a lot um, later and that was he uh, basically accepted Lerner's distinction between low full employment which corresponded to Friedman's natural rate and high full employment, which required control over labor costs. In other words, prices and incomes policy. Right. So he, Lerner distinguishes between those two and he calls the first low full employment and the second high full employment. Well, which one the policy maker went for um, was a matter of political choice and possibility. Choice. Keynes wrote to Beveridge on this issue of zero unemployment. Um, he said, no harm in aiming at 3%, but I shall be surprised if we succeed. So he always allowed that there had to be some unemployment, that you, you couldn't get zero outside war condition. Therefore, there was, no there was no mandate in his writings to just go, go on spending and spending, public spending, until you reach zero. Right, right. And, th and that, makes, you know, that makes sense. I mean, you, you noted um, in, in your book, Return of the Master, that uh, you know, Keynes is often considered to be the, the apostle of permanent budget deficits, but the notion that deficits don't matter was not Keynes. Um, it may surprise readers to learn that Keynes uh, thought that government uh, budget deficits should normally be in surplus, excuse me, but, uh, that government budgets should normally be in surplus, nor was Keynes a tax and spend fanatic. At the end of his life, he wondered whether a government take of more than 25% of the national income was a good thing. And then you, you summarize Keynes was not an inflationist, but he thought it was idiotic to worry about inflation when prices and output were in freefall. So when, you know, when we take this all together, uh, you know, would you agree that if Keynes were alive today, that he would be very worried about the, the growing number of modern monetary theorists and, and the growing number of politicians believing the idea that we need not worry about deficits and debt because we have full monetary sovereignty. Well, I think, I think he would have been worried because he was always very concerned about the political acceptability of, of, uh, of, of his proposals. And it's got to remember that Keynes was a civil servant as well as a theorist. And he was very, very, uh, his antennae, political antenna, antennae were very acute. And he, he, wanted to, he wanted to put forward proposals for dealing with unemployment um, that wouldn't run foul of all, all opinion and, and be regarded as way out on a limb. He wanted to you know, get a maximum of consensus. So he was quite careful 
<clears throat> and um, he, he, he was quite adaptable to the realities of the particular situation. And he wouldn't have thought that MMT, modern monetary theory, was necessary to, to, to justify running a budget deficit in the slump. I mean, the theory of the multiplier was enough to do that. I mean, if you, had, right. if you had a lot of idle capacity, you can calculate, you know, within limits and there are problems with a multiplier as well, but you can calculate how much spending you needed to, uh, to, to have in order to get the economy back to what he would call normal, normal level of activity. Um, so um, he, he did, didn't need modern monetary theory and he thought modern monetary theory was a bad defense of his, would have been a bad defense of his policy or would have been a bad exposition of his policy just because of the political rancor it would arouse. It, it right. somehow, it, it would only really be a philosophy of a sect or a, or, 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 or a minority and couldn't really hope to gain a general assent. Whereas the rest of, the rest of his theory and the argument for, 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 budget deficits based on multiplier, based on, um, uh, based on the multiplier, could win, uh, could win uh, acceptance. So I think that's the, the way um, I, I, would, I would look at it. Um, then, so, yeah, and, and, and then just to finish, to reinforce a point you made, he would have regarded it as nonsense, of course, that the government would have to tax or borrow before it could spend. Um, and, and that's a complete red herring. Um, and, and modern monetary theory is right to point it out. A government spends money when the, uh, spends money, um, when the central bank gives it a short-term loan, if you like, and the treasury converts its short-term debt into bank debt, uh, into long-term, uh, short-term debt to the bank, into long-term loan from the private sector. And so the conventional public finance rule is that the government doesn't allow the central bank's balance sheet to go on growing. I mean, that, that is the central bank, that is the finance rule, and, that, and Keynes would have agreed with that. At some point, the government's debt to the bank will have to be repaid. Um, so, I mean, but it'll be repaid from the growth of the economy and the growth right. of the revenues, which will give it the government the ability to pay back the central bank. You see, so, I mean, the whole thing was quite limited, quite constrained, quite contained, and made perfect sense without this runaway, this runaway bit added on. Right. So, yeah, we'll, we'll talk a, a little bit about the, the, the expanding balance sheet of the central bank in, in a minute. But back, back to this, do you think that, that some leaders are buying into this theory because they really don't understand the, the limits to monetary sovereignty? Because we, we know there are limits. I mean, you mentioned in your writings that, that, that Keynes once said the, the ideas of economists and political philosophers, both when they are right and when they are wrong, are more powerful than uh, what is commonly supposed. Indeed, the world is ruled by little else. Uh, I, I, I love that. Um, do you think that there is... Uh, been, you know, do you think there's a shift to or perhaps back to the idea that deficits don't matter, or is that still sort of um, resting in the minority of, of, of leaders' beliefs? Well, you know, there's been what I'd prefer to say is that there's been a shift back to a Keynesian way of thinking 
um, <clears throat> um, in reaction to the neo neoclassical um, orthodoxy that ruled um, uh, for the last 30 years or so, uh, because the economy has been in a, in, in, in a terrible condition. I mean, we didn't, first of all, there wasn't supposed to be a crash in 2008, 2009. No one, no one anticipated it. The Queen, our Queen, famously asked a group of economists at the LSE, London School of Economics, why didn't anyone tell, tell us it was going to happen, she said. <laughs> and the answer was that their models excluded it, you see. Um, we had an efficient financial system um, and that couldn't crash. Um, right. And then it did crash. And then, you know, and then, so what was you going to, do, what were you going to do about it? So governments did try and stop another Great Depression developing. And, and they pumped a lot of money, a lot of extra spending into the economy, treasury spending in one way or another. And then quantitative easing was supposed to bring about the recovery, printing, you know, printing money. So these, uh, these moves back, um, to Keynes um, have been the result of events. They, they haven't, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the neoclassical theory hasn't vindicated itself in its most important claim, which is that unless, if you leave markets to themselves, the, the economy will normally be stable at full employment. That claim has not been vindicated. So, of course, there's been um, a questioning. And then, of course, quantitative easing goes on now because of right. COVID-19. So the balance sheet of the central bank or the, or, or the Fed keeps growing. Um, and, uh, but, that, but, but, but the analysis is very, very clear in all this. You've got to get a good recovery. Then you can start reducing the, the Fed's balance sheet. Um, right. And um, the question is, how do you get the recovery? Right. Yeah, let's, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit more about uh, quantitative easing. Um, how do you think Keynes would view uh, the extent to which QE has sort of supplanted uh, fiscal policy? Um, you know, in, in Return of the Master, you wrote that there are two theories for recovery. The, the monitor, monetarist theory believes that a necessary and sufficient condition of recovery is for the central bank to expand the money supply. Uh, this is the theory behind quantitative easing. The spending theory believes that what is needed is government action to increase aggregate spending. The increase in the quantity of money is a consequence, not cause, of the recovery of business activity. What, what is shocking to me is that, you know, we have economists, even, you know, economists on the left who would describe themselves as Keynesian, sort of trumpeting QE because it essentially is the cancellation of debt in the sense that you can't owe money to yourself, thus the, the Treasury owing money to the Fed isn't really a problem. Um, and, and Keynes talked a little bit about this, um, you know, where, where he said the debt of a nation to its own citizens is a very different thing from the debt of a, the debt of a private individual. So, you know, the nation is the citizens who comprise it, no more, no less, and to owe money to them is not very different from owing money to oneself. So... How do you think he would interpret the current state of affairs where there seems to be a preference for QE over, you know, more demand side stimulus in the form of government spending? Well, I think you've got to, 
um, start with the idea of why QE was preferred to public in increases in public spending. I mean, there there's a group of economists called New Keynesians who um, uh, basically accepted the tenets of neoclassical economics, but said there should be some policy space for the government. There were there was a la there were lags, there were market imperfections, and so. There was, there was room for a stimulus. Economy, economies didn't automatically bounce back, you know, in five minutes after they'd had a big shock. And so they accepted at Keynesian view that they, they could settle in a state of underemployment equilibrium unless something was done. But they didn't want to do it by um, public spending. They wanted to do it, they, they were monetarists with a lag, if you like. Um, and they wanted to do it um, by purely monetary mechanisms. And, and what really happened was that the monetary weapon was much weaker than the fiscal weapon. The, 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 the claims of the, quant the, the quantitative, quantity, quantitative easing people, um, their, their projections of the impact of quantitative e easing were much too optimistic and so in the end, what they were left claiming was simply that things would have, got a, things would have been much worse if, um, if um, they hadn't done quantitative easing. And that was a very, it's quite a weak claim. It's probably a valid, valid claim, but it's quite a weak claim compared to the claims they were making when they started the process. So that's right. the first point. I mean, then I think in theory, of course, quantitative easing isn't about printing money. It's, it's nothing to do technically with printing money. It, it, it's swapping debt for cash, which is converting illiquid securities into more liquid form. And in theory, what, what they believe will happen is that this extra cash will then find its way into lower interest rates via bank lending and will also produce an, an, a, you know, increase in wealth in assets. And, that, and both of the, those two things um, will um, encourage more spending. So by these indirect means, you will get the boost via these two channels. Um, but Keynes would have said that that is an inferior method uh, for generating extra spending because, I quote him, there's many a slip between cup and lip. By which he meant that money needs to be spent, not just provided. If confidence of lenders and borrowers is low, much of the extra money will end up uh, in, it will go into cash reserves. It just won't be spent and then you won't get that effect uh, of, of stimulus or, or a much weaker stimulus than, you see, they assume, they assume the quantitative theory there's, that there's no such thing as liquidity preference. They, they assume that, you know, if they produce the money, it will either be invested or it will in, in some forms of securities or it will be spent in consumption. And um, uh, in fact, this, uh, this uh, pile up of cash reserves happened in the United States. It happened in, in the UK and it goes on happening um, uh, um, 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 uh, now. Um, 
However, the point is about QE is when the economy has recovered, the central bank is supposed to reverse its policy and start selling the bonds that had previously been buying. Um, and the reason this hasn't happened is there's never been a full recovery from 2008. And now we have the extra, the double whammy of COVID, which is going to produce a massive depression, whatever the administration says. Yeah. So do you think that one of the reasons why we are in an era of QE infinity and, and central banks being the only game in town is because the economics profession has still failed to embrace Keynes. You know, throughout, throughout your research, you note that Keynes did not think monetary policy should be used to manage the business cycle because as you said, for Keynesians, it's the spending of money, not its creation, that provides stimulus. And, and right now, you know, relative to how bad the, the economy has, uh, you know, performed in, in COVID-19 and, and, and 2008, we aren't spending money. We are just creating it through QE and praying that it, it trickles into the, the real economy. Yeah, via these channels that we talked about a moment ago. Wealth, you know, people will feel richer, therefore they'll, they'll spend more. Right. Uh, and yeah, well, that's, that they could, that's one, 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 uh, one, one response. But if you're also very, very nervous, you might not spend more um, because you don't know whether you'll still be richer in, in, in a year's time. You know, so, um, um, it, you know, there's that, that element. The, the paradox in all this is that a measured increase in public spending is a much more limited operation than going on printing money because it, it promises to have more effect in a shorter period of time. If you, if you print some money and believe that's going to have an effect and it doesn't have an effect, then you have to go on printing money right. because you're not right. getting the effect you suppose. And meanwhile, this more limited instrument is, is sort of not being used why isn't it being used? Because people fear government. They, they, they don't like the idea of, of the state, um, you know, intervening in the economy. If you do it indirectly through the banks, you'll get the same effect, or, but, but it won't involve actual treasury directives or treasury decisions. But if you don't get the effect, you're, you're, you're on a drug. You can't get All off right. it. Um, well, let's, yeah, let's, let's, let's talk about that a, a little bit more. You know, I think, I think the, the primary lesson we learned from the Great Depression was that we have to inflate, not deflate, which Keynes advocated, you know, during falling prices and economic down, downturns. Is the lesson we learned from the global financial crisis of 2008 that in the absence of fiscal policy, which unfortunately now seems to be the new norm, um, or even when we, we actually increase fiscal policy, but it's poorly implemented, like, you know, when we gave banks, you know, money and hope that they would lend it out, which we saw was, was highly ineffective, um, that a 21st century solution is just having the central banks give people money. I mean, I, I, I think that, that Keynes would have approached uh, 2008 quite differently than, you know, what most policymakers implemented. Um, but he did say that even, re even pure relief expenditure 
is better than nothing. The object must be to raise the total expenditure to figure out, uh, excuse me, raise the total expenditure to a figure which is high enough to push, push the vast machine of American industry into renewed motion. What is your view um, and how do you think Keynes would view the idea of direct cash payments from the central bank to consumers? Well, before I answer that, uh, let me, let me um, uh, 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 mention another thing Keynes said. He once said, um, um, if you employ people to, to, to um, um, dig holes and, 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 and then and, uh, big, make dig holes and then, and then shove the rubbish in them, you'd still sort of be doing, you know, you'd still be doing something. Um, right, paying, paying people to dig holes on Monday, fill them in on Tuesday. Yeah, yeah that's right. right. But then he added, unless you can't think of anything more reasonable to do. <laughs> <laughs> of course, which of course he denied. But um, um, so the important point is you raise demand and you can do it either by getting people to dig holes um, and fill them up or by um, giving them cash, you know, um, in, in the way you've just described. I mean, Friedman actually called it helicopter money. And, and Keynes, Keynes was quite, um, quite, quite keen on it. Um, in the general theory, he has a section on someone, an economist, a rather cranky economist, as he was regarded, called Silvio Gassel, who had a scheme for stamped money. And that was actually endorsed by Irving Fisher. Um, and, and according to that scheme, um, currency notes would only retain their value. Everyone would be given currency notes, you know, a check for a thousand pounds or dollars right. or whatever it was. But it would go bad, that money, unless it, you, you, got a, you went to the post office in those days and, and got, a, got it stamped. And you had to pay for the stamp in order for that money to remain valid. So each month, you, 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 if, if you hadn't spent it, um, you had right. to pay. In other words, money, um, 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 there was a carrying cost, a carrying right. cost to holding money. And he thought that was a perfectly reasonable way of doing it. I mean, practical implementation would have been, um, uh, would have been possible. But you see, when, 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 um, when people have been given cash um, in, 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 in the recent period, in the last... Um, in the last um, uh, since COVID, I think I think the, the administration sent out cash, cash thousand dollars checks to most people. I don't know whether it did. I think I read that it did, but there wasn't yeah. any obligation of them to on them to spend it. Right, and and I think you know most people, um, you know, probably sort of delevered uh, with with that money rather than going out and. And, and spending it, but that yeah, we did uh, get you know thirteen hundred dollars, uh, you know, as a, as a stimulus check, and um, you did know, you, did you but, get thirteen hundred dollars? Huh? No, uh, I, I I did not. I I, I was not eligible. <laughs> I was not eligible, but um, but yeah, let's let, you know, let, let's talk about that. You know, with the with the current health crisis, we've we've seen the the implementation of direct cash transfers to, to citizens. 
And, you know, I think one of the great things about no longer being on the gold standard is that we are afforded this flexibility. Um, you know, Kane said of the end of the gold standard, quote, we, we feel that we have at last a free hand to do what is sensible. The romantic phase is over and we can begin to discuss, discuss realistically what policy uh, is best. Um, how do you think Keynes would approach the, the present crisis where, you know, increasing spending on infrastructure projects, which he was, uh, you know, a key advocate for, um, is sort of not possible because it would require workers to interact with each other. Um, you know, and that's, that's, that's not really, really an option. How do you think he would approach the, the current crisis? Well, the, 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 the barrier to interaction um, really applies mostly to retail, hospitality, um, and shopping. Um, in fact, construction industry hasn't been constrained by that. Um, and in fact, there's quite a lot of construction going on in our country. Um, and so infrastructure projects um, um, are perfectly feasible now. Um, I'm okay. probably for consumption, you might need, you know, you need to support those in other ways. But infrastructure projects are perfectly feasible. And so are all kinds of public works projects. They're, they're, they're feasible. It's, you know, provided you have a you know, normal precautions, yeah. but you don't actually have to go into going to go into interact with people as you do um, in in the retail and hospitality sector so all that would have been perfectly feasible um, and it hasn't been done and it hasn't been done because again um, there's this fear that if government gets involved in allocating capital in some way or another it's going to you know um, well, it's going to, first of all, they're going to do it less efficiently. And then there's this curious theory, it'll take jobs away from the private sector, irrespective of the fact that, you know, there are millions of people unemployed in the private sector, because they, they, the, the, the private sector, large parts of it have been closed down. That's why they're unemployed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and so, yeah, we're, in, we're just in this endless cycle of QE, supporting capital, you know, markets, uh, you know, giving, you know, emergency lines of credit, but, you know, no actual, you know, demand side stimulus from, from the government that even central bank governors have been crying for. Yeah. They're, they're basically said there's nothing more that we can do. I mean, we've propped yeah. up everything. And at some point, you know, we're going to have to, you know, delever on our side. And, you know, we need your help. <laughs> Central banks are saying they need the help of government. Having said they could do the job on their own, having right. willingly accepted the powers that government gave them, they're now saying we can't do it. But what does that tell us about economic theory, the, the theory of the textbooks? Um, you know, uh, Mankur and, and, and Mankiw and lots of others, where you, you sort of get, you know, these, these uh, neoclassical, um, neoclassical doctrines trotted out as though right. they were, There's you know... no need for the federal government. Universal truths. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, let's, you know, let's, uh, let's shift a little bit. Um, yeah, that was an excellent discussion, and, and, and thank you so much for your, your input. Um, but let's, let's talk a, a little bit... Uh, 
let's talk about a little something different. Um, you know, the 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 current state of economics uh, seems to be, you know, quite quite irritating. You recently wrote uh, an excellent book uh, called uh, "What's Wrong with Economics: a, a Primer for the Perplexed," where you highlight the incongru incongruity of uh, economic teaching and economic reality. The arguments you made in this book are, are, are things that have been eating at me for, for quite some time, and, and I'm glad somebody actually shed light on how much we are, we are failing economists, the ones that came before us and the ones that you know, are in school now and the ones that will you know, come after. Uh, you know, if I can be honest, I'm, I'm sort, of, sort of disgusted with the way we've, we've turned the subject of macroeconomics into an applied math degree. Um, and, and the way that economics departments have have tailored their their doctoral programs into you know fraternities that only welcome mathematicians who really don't know that much about economics and and they turn away people that that do know about economics and are passionate about how economics can be used to make the world better. Um, how did you know how did this happen and and why did we allow this this change to happen? Well, I agree with you completely. There's been a, a real disconnect between economic models and economic reality. They assume, you see, they assume certain things which just are not true. One thing they assume is perfectly competitive markets. Well, we know that doesn't happen. We know that there's power in markets, but they assume away power. And they also assume perfect foresight, and therefore they um, assume away uncertainty. Um, uh, but um, I, I think, I think uh, uh, Robert Lucas um, once um, wrote, um, he, he's high priest of Chicago school. He said, I like to imagine um, humans in my models as interacting robots. And so if you think of, if you think of human behavior in those terms, you're, there's bound to be some disconnect between your model and actual human behavior. But right. um, so to, to understand how economics got into this hole, you'd really have to dig into the roots of classical economics and um, its ambition to make itself into a hard science um, uh, uh, like physics. Um, and I think that's been there all the way through. And for example, Paul Samuelson, who was a Keynesian, nevertheless said, the reason economics is better, is the queen of the social sciences, much better than history and sociology and anthropology and all these vague subjects, is its power of quantitative prediction. You, you, you can, if you look, if you look uh, at a simple supply and demand diagram, you can see that really um, uh, what, you're, what, you're, what, you're, what, what you're seeing is a representation of a mathematical theorem. Right. Um, and that's, that's, that's how all students start learning economics. All mathematical models are predictive models. They rely on deducing um, the effects of a, of, of, of a set of known causes, and then, of course, testing the deductions against the world. But the testing is never satisfactory. It can't do the job, it, they claim. And the, and the assumptions are wildly unrealistic in many in many cases as I've just um, um, uh, tried to explain um, and, and they and the models 
can work in the minds of the economists and they can work in the textbooks um, with, 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 with mathematical, um, mathematical um, language, but, but, but they, they don't work in, in, in the real world. And um, so, um, and, and, and this is true even in, in, in very much smaller areas like the virus. I mean, the science is meant to give us the cause and the solution. But the scientists disagree, um, and uh, they don't know what really what 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 causes what's caused it, and they don't know how to um, uh, really um, uh, uh, solve. They haven't got a solution to the problems it causes. And we try to apply the science to a much wider to the whole of human life. And as uh, as I said uh, a moment ago, think of humans as robots whose interactions we can predict and 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 also um, control, as you can right. control the re reactions of robots. Now, once you're in that sort of situation, how do you get out of it? Because that's what economics has, uh, with I think the notable exception of Keynes in in, in the last century, um, has that's a situation economics has been in. And Keynes was more than an economist; he actually was a, ma a person of wide culture, and he understood that yeah, you need mathematics. Of course, you need maths, um, and you also need uh, and you need um, and you and, and you need microeconomics, very important. But you have to get a sense of how the economy as a whole works, and that involves knowing something about its history. History, its location, where it is, why the American economy works different from the from the German economy or the Chinese economy. You need to know all those those things in 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 in, in trying to uh, trying to um, model your 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 your, um, your your thought and not assume that you know you have universal models that apply to everything everywhere uh, at all times. Yeah, I mean, you you know uh, on numerous occasions that that Keynes was very skeptical of uh, econometrics and and making forecasts, and uh, you also you know said that he he believed uh, economics should be should be written so that it can be understood by non-economists. Uh, you said uh, Keynes tried to communicate his language. Uh, communicate his ideas in language which his readers could understand, in words they might use themselves, and which reflected their experiences of what was going on. Yep. Um, and then you, you, also, you also said that, you know, Keynes believed uh, young economists were not properly educated in, in the sense that they were unable to, to draw on a wide, wide culture and, and, and interpret economic facts. You know, like you said, they 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 need history. They need, you know, uh, social uh, <clears throat> sociology. They they need to pull all these different pieces together to to make an, an informed conclusion. But you know, I think I think we should just just look at how economics is now and and call a spade a spade. I mean, the the truth is that right now in every top economics department in the world. There are PhD economists writing papers that nobody will ever read, full of equations nobody understands, and, and comprise uh, theories that have already been disproven over and over in practice. Um, you know, isn't, isn't this quite dangerous, or you know, is it only when that research enters the real world where, where things get tricky. I mean, I'm, I'm of the opinion that, 
you know, economic history, I think, is, is sort of far more important than econometrics because there's no point in building a model that has been disproven over and over and over again. But that's what's happening because people aren't studying the history of, of, of what has happened in the past. Yeah, I, I, I think um, I think that economics is is due for a change. What I fear is that one day, uh, quite soon, part of the house will be empty. People won't want to won't just won't want to study this kind of stuff, and they'll 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 switch. Um, they'll, they'll switch to other things, and and they'll, and, go, they'll go from the. The more applied to the, the the theoretical, or no, the other way they'll 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 do their business studies, or they'll or they'll do other 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 subjects altogether because they 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 they'll realize that what what they're being what they're being compelled to do in economics in courses doesn't relate to uh, the situation they find find it, and I think it would be a pity if most of economics disappears. You know, um, this has happened with disciplines in the past. They've just vanished. Think of astrology. Um, magic was considered very scientific at one time. And, and, and there have been areas of human thought which have just vanished, essentially, um, because they're no use any longer. They don't, they don't do the job. Right. And it would be a pity if economics went anywhere down that route, because it does, it does have a job to do. I mean, it, it does. It's very important that economics should be there as a factor in, in, in policy and in our understanding of the world. Um, so what I would say is that, you know, economists should be mathematicians, historians, philosophers, socialists, uh, so, 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 sorry, mistakes, sociologists and ethics to some degree. And I mean that practitioners of these disciplines should be able to understand each other's language. That's right. very, very important. To some degree, it's not that you'd expect, you know, a historian to have perfect understanding of microeconomics, but a historian, they should have some understanding of what economists are saying. And economists should have under some understanding of and respect for what historians and political scientists are saying. So you need to broaden out. And the broadening out, really, the, what, the point at which it should broaden out is that students should really start with the macroeconomy, an idea of how the whole works and how the parts might fit together, and then zoom in into a more specialized sort of field of their interest. Um, right. Rather than starting the other way around and 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 coming to believe that the bits the the microeconomic bits, if you add them all up, they produce a macroeconomy. It's not that way round, um, and um, so that's what I would do. I would I I, I would reform economics courses um, to start with the big picture and then move to more specialised. Uh, narrow pictures rather than do it in the reverse. I think if you do it in reverse, you, you come up into a terrible problem of um, the fallacy of composition and, you know, the idea that adding small bits up give you a large bit and a large picture. I think all those you should eliminate yeah, by doing yeah. it the way I'm suggesting. Right. And then also bringing in, you know, I mean, I, I, I have two graduate degrees 
one in economics and then one in economic policy. And I had to go into the history department and take an economic history class. It was not a part of the core curriculum of either one. And I just, I just, so I know that my classmates, you know, who are building these models have not learned, you know, what has happened in the past with some of these yeah. models that they're currently building. And yeah. that's just, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's scary. So I, I think that, you know, your, your idea of, 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 of sort of taking a, a, a more macro view uh, first and, and then sort of going down and also pulling in other other disciplines as well yeah. will, will they certainly must, They must respect each other. I mean, they've got to respect each other. The economists don't respect the insights, really, of, 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 of historians. And the historians resolutely refuse to learn any economics. So they <laughs> often sound economically illiterate. They're silos. What? Yeah. They're silos of knowledge. Yeah, stock flow, exactly. There's got to be a flow. There've got to be flows of knowledge between them. But that requires a particular kind of mind, I think. It's, it's very hard, you know, people talk casually about, um, uh, uh, what's the phrase um, um, uh, that describes moving from one field to another, multi-tracking or, or lateral thinking, and as though this was easy to do and that it would be taught at school. It, it's not. You, you have to be attuned to the, the importance of this before you become curious about what people in adjacent areas are saying. I mean, I had experience of this at university. I'm, when I was in the economics department, I had to go to Brazil once to meet someone who was along the corridor who was a sociologist. We never right. talked. There was no way we talked. We talked then most productively. But, you know, that's the way it works. People are stuck in their silos and they don't communicate with each other. Um, and um, so I agree. I, hope, I agree with I you. I hope that the, you know the recommendations that you've you know you said here you said in your book what's wrong with economics uh, I really hope that that these the, the these people that that run these economics departments really sort of take it to heart because I feel like you know we we're sort of at an inflection point and and we have to we have to change it now and and we're failing we're failing the 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 you know the the economists that are coming out of these departments, and and I hope that I hope that they 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 listen to your advice. I feel um, sorry for the kids going in, yeah. and thinking that they're thinking that they're going to study something that will help them make the world better, and finding that they they spend all their time doing supply and demand diagrams in mathematics. I I, I you know I I feel sorry for them. Um, and um, they're going to be disillusioned. And the, and, the, and the sad thing is, if they only do that, they eventually come to become, they eventually become robots. I right. mean, just as it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, Lucas, you know, creates the people he needs for his models. Right, right. Well, uh, Pro Professor Skidelsky, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. I, I know that our listeners and I have learned so much from you, and we thank you for, for taking the time out of your, your busy schedule to join us. Thank you for inviting me, and I'm glad we sorted out the technical problems. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, if you, if you want to get more Robert Skidelsky, two of his books, Kane's Return of the Master and his new book, 
What's Wrong with Economics, a primer for the perplexed, um, are both available for purchase on the Demand Sides Library page. And if you want to access all of uh, Professor Skidelsky's research, visit robertskidelsky.com. Professor, thank you again. Thank you. Well, that's it for us here at the Demand Side. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, Keynesianism in the Age of Monetary Sovereignty, with our very special guest, Professor Robert Skidelsky. Make sure to check out all the episodes of the Demand Side on the Demand Side's landing page, wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to visit thedemandside.com for access to opinion pieces, books, news, and videos. Thank you all for joining us today. And remember, if you're forced to choose sides, always choose the Demand Side. Until next time.